Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for February 26, 2014, from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month was Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who spoke to us about his roadmap to end aging. We hope you enjoy. I'm in the controversial area where I work on, and of course the bizarre thing for anyone who understands this is the idea that anyone could not understand it, the idea that it could be controversial. Um, we need to, first of all, distinguish two aspects of the topic, one being the feasibility of doing something about aging, of bringing aging under some kind of medical control, and on the other side, the desirability of doing so, the idea of um, you know, changing the way that humanity exists, the human condition, if you like, into a, a situation so dramatically different, from a, a situation in which one of the most fundamental parameters of what we think of life as consisting of is simply negated, namely the inevitability of getting sick as you get older. And I went through the first 30 years of my life believing, well, I wasn't, believing is probably the wrong word, presuming that everybody viewed it as obvious, as I did, that aging is bad for you, and that our most serious problem as a species is to fix it. Uh, our most important challenge is to fix it, because it causes more suffering than anything else in the world. It causes make more death, more sickness, and so on. I just completely never con- contemplated the idea that there could be any ambivalence, any, any, any doubt about this among the rest of society. And of course, because I had no conception that there could be any doubt, I didn't talk to people about it. And people didn't talk to me about it, and that didn't occur to me as strange. You know, in very much the same way that we don't talk about other obvious things, like, you know, the colour of the sky, or whatever it might be. Um, but it was only when I reached the age of 30 or so, um, that I started to realize that that wasn't the case. I met my wife when I was 26. That's my wife over here, Adelaide Carpenter. Um, Adelaide has been a very distinguished biologist since I was a young child. And um, I was very, um, uh, I benefited very greatly from her expertise and wisdom as I was more or less accidentally learning biology uh, during the first few years that we were together in the early 1990s. Um, and then gradually, it just kind of like by a sort of osmotic process, it kind of um, became apparent to me that we were not talking about aging. And I, I mean, I mean, of course, Adelaide, you know, is one of many biologists who don't work on aging, so that's fair enough. But we were talking about a lot of things that Adelaide doesn't actually work on, and yet we were never talking about aging. And it finally occurred to me that this was a bit paradoxical. And eventually, I started asking questions and began to understand that not only Adelaide, but biologists in general viewed aging as not terribly important and not terribly interesting. And this was a complete revelation to me. I, I, was, I was absolutely astonished um, that this could be the case. That I, I'd completely gone through life presuming that every biologist understood that that was their main goal in life, was to actually do something about this terrible thing. Um, but eventually, you know, I came to terms with this. I realized that, no, most biologists don't think that way. Um, I began to realize, in particular, that there is a very, very 
profound distinction of mindset between, on the one hand, basic scientists whose goal in life is to figure out how nature works, whether they be biologists, physicists, whatever, and on the other side, technologists, whose basic goal is not to figure out how nature works, but to manipulate how nature works, to improve the um, way that nature works, so to speak, um, in a manner that will uh, be beneficial to the human condition. And I am very much a technologist myself, as far as I'm concerned, knowledge is not knowledge for its own sake, knowledge is a means to an end, knowledge is a way of figuring out how to build technology that can improve our lives. So, here I am, I was originally a computer scientist when I met my wife, and I eventually switched my research area to gerontology, and I've been doing that for the past getting on for 20 years now. And it's been going okay. I've obviously been able to make um, you know, the occasional contribution, but there's a long way to go. So I dedicate my life to hastening the defeat of aging as best I can. I'm fortunate enough to, as Roy mentioned, to have been able to attract a certain amount of funding to this area, and certainly a good deal of support by very talented people. So Sense Research Foundation, the organization that's been created around my work, is a reasonably sizable thing now. We have a budget of four or five million dollars per year, and we employ, uh, well, if we include the people that we support academically in universities, it's probably um, 30 or so people um, focused on a wide range of different projects. And so, so that's all very good news. But the fact is, it could still be going a lot faster. I would say that actually, if funding were not a limiting factor, which would probably mean we'd need maybe 10 or 20 times as much money as we have today, then we could be going at least three times faster, not 20 times faster, because, of course, we're working on the lowest hanging fruit. But still, I mean, three times faster is a lot. So a large part of the reason why I spend a lot of my time doing talks, whether it's to audiences like this, or to scientists, or to, like this morning I was speaking to insurance companies, um, a large part of the reason I do that is to get the word out, you know, to educate people, to raise the quality of debate on all of these topics, so as to essentially engender enthusiasm in society and thereby increase the level of financial support for this work. It's important to emphasize that that is really, at this point, the only problem. Of course, when I began, there were three problems. I needed a plan. I needed to figure out how to defeat aging. Secondly, I needed the personnel. I needed to make sure that people with the best expertise, the best resources, the best uh, scientific um, appreciation of how to actually implement the plan, whatever it was that I came up with, were actually interested in doing so, rather than in doing other stuff. And both of those problems are pretty much entirely solved. The uh, essence of what we are trying to achieve is a plan that I first formulated back in 2000, so nearly um, 15 years ago, and it hasn't had to change pretty much at all. You know, details have been, have been enhanced, have, been, have changed, but the overall plan is more or less exactly how it was at the beginning, and that's extremely good news, of course. Whenever a plan to do something really ambitious like defeating aging stands the test of time, you're justified in having a certain amount of confidence that it really is a good plan. Um, <coughs> the second thing, in terms of bringing in the expertise, it's not just the people who work for Sense Foundation, 
but also the luminaries, the professors around the world who are hot to trot, who are really very keen on working on all of these things. Some of them, obviously, we are already supporting. We allocate perhaps one-third of our research budget to work that goes on in our lab in Mountain View, California, and the other two-thirds goes to university labs around the world, about uh, more than a dozen of them now, actually. So, you know, it's pretty good news that we've achieved that, but on top of that, we have many other researchers whose work we would like to find and who are ready to take our money and get on and do what we'd like them to do. It's just that biology is inevitably, irreducibly expensive, and so that's why it's important to raise the budget for all of this work. So that's just the preamble. Let me now talk about what we're actually doing. Uh, and first of all, let me actually discuss a little bit about the about why it's important. Um, a lot of people get terribly exercised about, you know, if we defeated aging, wouldn't there be too many people, or wouldn't dictators live forever, or wouldn't it be boring, or how would we pay the pensions, or all manner of things like this. And I may, over the years, have been a little bit too charitable uh, in my responses to these concerns. You know, I may have been too hesitant in just, to be honest, ridiculing them. Because to be perfectly clear, we need to have a sense of proportion about all of this. How about anyone who wants to get Alzheimer's disease? How right? about anyone who thinks there, will, there is some age at which they will want to get Alzheimer's disease? Well, that was easy. All right. Oh, there's something at the back. Furthermore, no, no, it's okay, he's loud enough now. Okay, yeah, so, uh, so. And I believe myself um, in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what I asked. I didn't ask whether you thought you were going to get it. I asked whether you wanted to get it. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> um, I forgot. Yeah, I've lost it. But, uh, uh, I had been to my doctor and, uh, he says, I don't have it, but I had quite a lot of the symptoms that my mother had, and I feel uh, that I, had, I, would, I am in the early stages, but I am coping, mm -hmm. and... Uh, All right, but so you'd rather not be. You'd, you'd rather not be in the early stages. You'd rather be how you were 20 years ago. Right. Well, you say of course, and I say of course as well, but let's be let's clear about this. I'm talking to everybody now, not just to you. Let's be clear about this. I get an extraordinary amount of resistance to the idea that it would be a good thing if people didn't get biologically old as they get chronologically old. An extraordinary amount of resistance. So people actually lift their hands and say, I want to get older? They don't say that, no. But they do say, it would be a terrible catastrophe if we suddenly had some miracle and people stayed young and didn't die and so on. About, um, let me see, nearly two years ago now, was it? Oh, I'll come to, I'll come to you in a moment. About nearly two years ago, Roy here, who is organised tonight, organised another event in Oxford, I think he's organised a few of them over the years now. Uh, the most high-profile one was at the Sheldonian, where I debated Colin Blakemore, a very prestigious and um, talented and smart neuroscientist, um, worked in Oxford for a very long time. He ran the MRC for four whole years. 
So the Medical Research Council, that's the body that is predominantly responsible for determining medical research funding in the U throughout the UK. He ran it for four years. And he was willing to stand up at the Sheldonian in public, on camera, and say that it would be a catastrophe if the sort of thing that I'm talking about were actually to occur. Now, you've really got to understand what this means. You've really got to understand what this means. This means that the guy who ran medical research funding in the UK for four years thinks that medicine for the elderly is a good thing only if it doesn't work very well. Only if it only slightly postpones the ill health of old age. If it actually works the way that medicine for most infectious diseases already works, then he thinks that would be a catastrophe. That's the situation we're in. Colin Bloodmore is not an outlier in this regard. He is actually pretty representative of mainstream opinion, both among the general public and among the opinion formers and advisors on public policy, such as himself. This is unbelievable, but it's a fact, and it's something that you all need to be very, very scared of. Let me know. Um, see what this guy behind me wants to say. I just wonder to what extent how Alzheimer's Well, let's talk about that. Young people don't get Alzheimer's, by and large. Of course, there are occasional genetic variants. Yeah, okay, but let's forget about that. <coughs> so, Alzheimer's is an age-related disease. Now, how can a disease be age-related? How can it predominantly affect people who were born a long time ago? Seems to me, and please correct me if you think that I have it, there's anything wrong with this argument, that the only way that can be the case is if the disease is, is some aspect of the later stages of a process that goes on throughout life and is, in, is initially asymptomatic. Right? Now, what is aging if it's not that? Does everyone get it? Everyone who gets old enough gets it, yes. So people actually talk about that a lot. You, you, you ask the right question, because people say, well, the diseases of old age, they're not universal the way aging is. But the thing is, they don't say what aging is. What I tend to ask people to do when they make statements along those lines, statements that I think don't make any sense, is I say, okay, please make the same statement without using the word aging. And they're not very good at that. Um, so, you know, my view of aging is that the only coherent definition of it is it's this initially asymptomatic process that goes on throughout life and eventually ends up with the various disabilities and diseases of old age. Now, of course, different people have uh, the complicated multifactorial process, and I'll be talking about that a good deal over the next, <coughs> over the next while. And that means that it's no surprise that because people have slightly different genetics, uh, certain aspects of aging, certain aspects of the accumulation of asympt initially asymptomatic damage happen a little faster in some people, a little slower in other people, and so on. And therefore, some people get one of the late stages problems before others and the other way around. And therefore, they compete, right? And of course, if they kill you, they compete for that. And so, many people will die of Alzheimer's before they've died of cancer, but they'll have cancer, except the one who got to a life-threatening stage. And likewise, heart disease, and so on and so forth. Does that answer your question? Very good. All right, well, how was that? Um, so, uh, I kind of summarized a lot of what I was going to say at greater length. So, let me, let me say it at greater length. Aging is a side effect of being alive in the first place. 
only happens because the human body is a machine, and just like any simple man-made machine, car, aeroplane, whatever, the laws of physics dictate that anything with moving parts is going to do damage to itself as a side effect of its normal operation. That's why we age. The only difference between the human body and a simple man-made machine in that regard is, number one, a matter of degree. The human body is much more complicated than anything we've been able to design ourselves. And number two, that the human body has an awful lot of inbuilt automatic anti-aging machinery, if you like, damage repair machinery, that gets rid of these various types of molecular and cellular damage as parts of their created. However, those differences don't actually amount to anything in the long run. The first one doesn't matter because all it really says is that it's much harder to do anything about aging of, a, of the human body than it is to do something about aging of a car. And number two, the existence of this um, automatic machinery doesn't make a difference because that automatic repair machinery is not comprehensive. The reason we age is because there are gaps in our anti-aging machinery. There are types of damage that the body does to itself as side effects of its normal operation, but, which, but for which there is no machinery to automatically repair it. And those are the types of damage that progressively accumulate over time throughout life and that eventually lead to the diseases and disabilities of old age. So for practical purposes, at the end of the day, the human body is simply a machine. Now, of course, I'm making no statement here at all about what aspects of the human being there may be that are not physical, you know, the soul or whatever. I'm not making any statement about that. I'm just talking about the body. Any non-physical aspects that you may think exist in the, in the human being that are in some sense trapped in the body until we die, um, you know, that's not, my, that's not my area. And that doesn't need to be my area. All I'm interested in is maintaining the human body in a state of full functionality. Okay, so the question then is, how do we do this? And how, how close are we to doing anything about the problem of accumulating damage that's eventually pathogenic, eventually causes the diseases and disabilities of old age? Well, the big breakthrough that I made in 2000 was, well, it came in two parts, really. The first of all, a single concept, and then the, um, if you like, the dissection of that concept into a bunch of, um, a bunch of ideas. So the single concept was to realize that repairing the damage of aging was probably going to be a great deal easier than slowing down the creation of that damage in the first place. And this was a very, very important distinction. And it's something that still underpins the reason why a number of people who study the biology of aging have a lot of trouble understanding what I'm saying. It's been understood since the early 1900s by some people anyway, that the only moralistic way to combat the ill health of old age is to combat it at source. In other words, to engage in preventative medicine. If we just try to tackle the diseases and disabilities of old age just like an infection, it's not going to work. And that's precisely because there are the later stages of this lifelong process. If you, if you take something like Alzheimer's and you try to tackle the actual symptoms, then your treatment, if it works at all, will work increasingly ineffectively as time goes on, 
simply because the damage that is driving the symptoms is continuing to accumulate as a side effect of the body's normal operation. So, we're going to be earlier on. But historically, people who study the biology of aging have taken the view that the right way to figure out how to combat that process, how to postpone the ill health of old age, is comparative. In other words, to look at how different species age at different rates, or indeed how different individuals within a species, such as humans, age at different rates, and to figure out why, and to kind of extrapolate from that, so as to figure out how we might manipulate our metabolism so that everybody ages more slowly. And, mysteriously, that has been extremely ineffective in uh, giving rise to any kind of therapy. Well, that's why. And, of course, people have done that. People have said, well, okay, well, we're not really getting anywhere. And the ultimate answer is, metabolism is just too complicated. The body is so insanely complicated that if you try to tweak it, if you try to tweak the way the body works in such a way as to substantially slow down the rate at which it does something we don't want it to do, namely, in this case, creating damage, then we're more or less certain to have unintended side effects. We're going to do more harm than good in other ways. The contribution that I made back in 2000 was to notice that we don't actually need to slow down the creation of damage in order to postpone the age at which that damage reaches a pathogenic level. What we could do instead is to go in and repair the damage after it's been created. Well, we have to repair it more than once, we have to repair it periodically, but if we can do so, then we're done. We will be able to maintain the level of that damage at a sub-pathogenic level. So that was, the, that was the big conceptual idea. So then the counterpart to that, the thing that really made the thing fly, was to be able to describe what that meant in practice, what these therapies would actually be that would repair the various types of damage that accumulate. And the big... Um, I guess, insight or challenge that I came up with was I reckoned that actually we understood aging well enough to be able to make a confident statement about that. That all of the types of damage that accumulate in the body and that eventually contribute to age-related ill health were already identified, already known. I made that statement on the basis that they'd already been out there for like 10 or more years in fact, more like 20 years, nearly 20 years, uh, as concepts and the things that have been studied by gerontologists, and that has remained the case. That list has not been added to it. Furthermore, it's not been added to, even though I've been going out there for the past 10 years and claiming that it's an exhaustive classification. The classification in question consists of only seven different types of damage, seven different phenomena at the cellular or molecular level which eventually give rise to the ill health of old age. And that's a manageable number. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of dividing the problem of repairing the damage of aging into bite-sized chunks. So, you know, if that really is true, then it, there really are only seven types of damage to fix, then that's very good news indeed. Of course, it's not the end of the story. We then have to actually talk about how the fixes would be done. And, of course, the purpose of the classification into these seven categories is also to classify the therapies. 
within each category, there's just one generic type of approach to fixing it that may be slightly different from one example to another within a category, but only slightly different. So this is why it's a useful classification. Now, some of the categories that we're talking about are somewhere are a good way along. So one category is cell loss. Cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. Obviously, it's an important thing during life. It turns out to be particularly important for certain aspects of aging. Parkinson's disease is the most obvious one. There's a particular part of the brain where neurons die at an unusually rapid rate, and in people in, which, in whom they die uh, particularly rapidly, you get loss of a chemical called dopamine, which is created by those neurons, and you get the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The way to fix it is something that you've all heard of. It's called stem cell therapy. And stem cell therapy, whether for aging or for any other problem that's caused by cell loss, is simply the maintenance approach to fixing cell loss, repairing that damage by restoring the number of cells in question. You put in the stem cells, which are precursors of the cells that have gone missing. Those cells divide and differentiate to create cells that are exactly the same, of the same type as the ones that weren't missing. So, that's a, a simple example that you're already familiar with of the maintenance approach. For all of the other six types of damage, and if I had slides I'd be talking about them, but I think it's easier for me not to do that unless you have questions, um, the same deal exists. You know, there's a particular way of going about fixing it. Now, in most of those cases, it has a much earlier stage of development Cell Research Foundation exists mostly because we want to work on getting those things to catch up, on getting those um, therapies to a proof of concept stage that other people will run with, whereas at the moment most people think that they're too hard and so it's very difficult for anybody else to get money for them. But that's the basic concept. We identify the various types of molecular and cellular change that occurs throughout life to the structure and composition of the body as a side effect of the body's normal operation, whether it's breathing or eating or whatever. And then we figure out ways to fix those various types of molecular and cellular change. And we work simply from the very, very straightforward and unambiguous and uncontroversial principle that if you can restore the structure of any machine, whether it's a car or an aeroplane or the human body, to how it was at an earlier time in its life, then you will also restore that machine's function. You will restore the ability of that machine to do what it was designed to do. And, as one aspect of that, you will restore its longevity. You will allow it to carry on doing what it was designed to do for longer than it otherwise would. Now, we must ask, of course, what the magnitude of the benefit in this regard might be. And one can, in principle, imagine maintenance, repair therapies that would be rather, rather mildly effective, that would only extend healthy life by a couple of years, maybe. But the thing is, by the nature of maintenance, it can be incrementally improved. So one would expect that if we can get a few years out of the human body by this kind of, kind of uh, approach fairly soon, then, by continuing to refine the, the, the therapy to make them more powerful and uh, more versatile, we'll be able to get more and more extra life out. And that's certainly what we believe. 
it's so important to understand that these are truly rejuvenation therapies we're talking about. Therapies that will be applied to people who are not in childhood or in early adulthood, but actually in middle age or older, and will genuinely restore them back to a biologically younger state, to young adulthood. So it won't be just a case of arresting one's biological age at the point that it was at when, when the therapies were first initiated. I'm wondering what else I should talk about. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, um, the social context of all of this, because this is something that concerns a lot of people. Um, and it somewhat, it, it somewhat irritates me that it comes up so much, but because it does, it, it's something that I feel I always have to address. It seems to me that people are not very good at having a sense of proportion about the whole question of aging. They tend to worry terribly about whether, you know, defeating aging will change society in ways that we can't manage, like, you know, increasing the population too much or whatever. And they tend to forget that we have a problem today, that the vast majority of medical expenditure and indeed um, medical research funding that's spent at the moment goes on the diseases and disabilities of old age. And they also tend to forget that the reason why we choose to spend so much on medical care for the elderly is because the thing that causes the most suffering in the world is ill health. Ultimately, the single one thing that people want the most to, to, to preserve in their lives is their health. And the fact is we can't do it for people who are getting old, who were born a long time ago. So, you know, to me, it's completely incontrovertible that aging is the world's worst problem. Aging causes the largest amount of ill health, and ill health causes the largest amount of suffering, QED. You know, there is that, 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 that's the beginning and end of the matter for me. But there is this extraordinary amount of ambivalence about this among people in, uh, throughout society, and, and I, I, I spend my entire life tackling it. I feel that the reason there's, an, there's ambivalence is basically because people need to put aging out of their minds. That since the dawn of civilization, since we discovered, since we realized that aging exists, we have known that it's, number one, inevitable, and number two, horrific, and so we've got to find some way of going on with our miserably short lives and making the best of it, you know, um, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen. But of course, the thing is, that's now changing. We are now within striking distance of being able to do something about aging. And in this scenario, this ambivalence, this, 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 this compulsion to put aging out of our minds, has become an enormous part of the problem. It makes it vastly harder for people like myself who have actual, concrete, real plans for doing something about aging to be able to put those plans into practice, which is a bit of a shame. All right, well, I think the best thing for me to do at this point is actually to invite some interaction. I've, uh, there's plenty more I could talk about, but I think I'd like to ask some questions and generally get a conversation going. And I... You said seven times. Did you miss one? Okay, you want to Yeah. Great. Right, so, four of them are at the cellular level and four at the molecular level. So, I've given you one at the cellular level having too few cells. Cells progressively dying and not being replaced. The other two that are at the cellular level are both the opposite of that, having too many cells. And the reason there are two is because there are two fundamentally different ways in which you can end up having too many cells. 
One of them is if cells dissolve when they're not supposed to, which is basically what, that's a, more or less the definition of cancer, right? And the other one is if cells don't die when they are supposed to. That's something that people often forget because it's not very conspicuous, but it turns out to be really important in why the immune system goes downhill in old age. Essentially, the immune system relies for its function on cells proliferating like crazy when an infection happens that happens to be just right for that tiny number of cells, and then most of those cells need to die to make space for the next infection to have the same function. That stops happening so well in the elderly, especially in relation to <coughs> certain persistent infections like cytomegalovirus. Um, so that's, that's the main example of cells not dying when they're supposed to. All right, so those are the three cellular ones. The four molecular ones fall into two sets of two, two of them inside the cell and two of them outside the cell, in the space between cells. So in, inside the cell, first thing I want to talk about is mitochondrial mutations. So the mitochondria, for those of you who don't know, the mitochondrion is an extremely important part of almost all our cells, which is responsible for the chemistry of breathing. It's the place where oxygen is chemically combined with nutrients to extract energy from those nutrients uh, that's used, of course, for all the things that the body has to do. And um, the mitochondrion is a very strange part of the cell in the sense that, it, it, in, the, in respect of the fact that it has its own DNA. Very small amount of DNA only encodes 13 proteins, but those proteins are absolutely essential. And for a bunch of reasons, it turns out that the mitochondrial DNA accumulates mutations much, much, much more quickly than the regular chromosome. So, the mitochondrial mutations appear to be quite important as a contributor to, a, to general age-related decline. Not necessarily to any particular disease, but to age-related decline in general. So we need to fix that. The other one that's inside the cell is simply garbage. Molecular byproducts of normal metabolic processes that accumulate slowly enough that evolution hasn't taken the trouble to invent machinery either to destroy the garbage or to excrete it. And that garbage turns out to be really important for a bunch of the most important diseases of old age. Cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, is caused this way. The garbage in question in that case is oxidized cholesterol in white blood cells in the artery wall. Another example is macular degeneration, the number one cause of blindness in the elderly. That's caused by a chemically different type of garbage, but again, garbage that's accumulating in the cell because the cell doesn't know how to break it down in the back of the retina. All right, so what are the two <coughs> inside the cell? <coughs> Finally, we've got the two molecular types of damage outside the cell, in the spaces between cells. The first of those is, again, molecular garbage. In general, this is of a form that's known as amyloid, so proteins that get into a misfolded state that's prone to aggregate. Amyloid is best known in the context of Alzheimer's disease in the brain, something called phenyl plaques, which accumulate throughout life and eventually get to be problematic, but it's also actually much more important in certain diseases, certain other diseases of old age. It, it plays a role in type 2 diabetes and also in heart failure in the extreme elderly, over, over 100 years old. In these cases, the, um, the, the proteins that are involved are actually different from the proteins that are involved in Alzheimer's disease, but the, the problem is the same. It's still amyloid. Finally, we've got cross-linking. So, um, some of our tissues need to be elastic in order to work. 
A great example are the walls of our major arteries. So I talked about atherosclerosis already, but we should also talk about arteriosclerosis, the stiffening of the artery, as opposed to the fatty deposits. This is what leads to high blood pressure in the elderly with all the knock-on effects like kidney failure and so on. And it turns out that that, elasticity, that, that stiffening, that loss of elasticity, is caused by chemical reactions between the proteins that make up the, well, the elastic um, structure of the artery wall and uh, sugar that is circulating in the, in the bloodstream. Those chemical reactions sometimes cause new chemical bonds to form in places where they shouldn't, and that causes the stiffening. It doesn't only happen in the artery, it also happens in the lens of the eye, it also happens in the skin and other places, but probably the, the major arteries are the most life-threatening example. So that's, what, that's the slide-free answer to your question. And if you want to know the answer, I have a copy of my book in my back. Oh. That's why telomere is shortening, doesn't it? A few years ago, that was Yeah, excellent question, yeah. So, um, uh, a lot of people probably don't even know what a telomere is, so let me start from the very beginning. So, the mitochondrial DNA comes from bacteria, and it's a circle. It's a circular molecule. But our chromosomes in the nucleus are not circular. They are linear DNA molecules. And for whatever reason, in, uh, in its infinite wisdom, evolution failed over the billennia to, um, to develop ways to replicate a linear DNA molecule completely. So what happens when a chromosome is replicated in, in conjunction with cell division is that the ends of the chromosomes get shorter. And the ends of the chromosomes are called telomeres. Now, of course, if this were to happen indefinitely, you'd be in a bit of trouble. And since there is an indefinite chain of cell division going from one generation to the next through the sperm and eggs, we definitely need a fix to this problem. And what life evolves as an answer to this, rather than fixing the problem at source, in other words, developing a DNA replication machinery that could, could replicate the telomere, it instead developed <coughs> an enzymatic um, system that was able to compensate for the loss so that when the chromosome is replicated the chromosome does get shorter at the end but then the enzyme comes along and adds a little bit of extra DNA to the end to, um, to offset the, the shortening. All very clever. And the enzyme in question is called telomerase. Now, it turns out that if you take cells, most, most cell types anyway, from the human body and you make them, and you put them in culture and you just let them divide and divide and divide, eventually they will stop dividing. And the reason they stop is now known to be that the telomeres get shorter and shorter and eventually they are misinterpreted. They are seen as if they were broken chromosomes as if they were not actually the ends of chromosomes at all, but they were kind of the middle of a chromosome. And that's rather important, because chromosomes do break a lot throughout life. <coughs> so constantly have to cope with things that just go wrong and the chromosome breaks in half. And of course the, reason, the way they cope is by joining the ends together again to restore the chromosome's integrity. So if the end of the chromosome starts to look like the middle of a chromosome, like a chromosome break, you can see what's going to happen. Chromosomes are going to get joined together end to end. And 
it turns out that that's actually rather bad rather quickly. Yeah, that, yeah, if you join your chromosomes end to end, then the cell gets unhappy uh, more or less at once. So the problem for this enzyme, telomerase, that will compensate for the telomere shortening seems to be very essential. But then we have to ask, well, okay, why do cells that you grow in culture exhibit this phenomenon? The answer is because we're making them do something that they don't have to do in the body. The cells that are normally used for experiments like this come from the lower layer of the skin, the dermis. They're called fibroblasts. And fibroblasts normally just sit there. They just hang out in the skin doing nothing. The reason they're useful in cell culture experiments is because they're very, very good at dividing like crazy on demand when you put them in an environment that, that says now is the time to divide. But in the body, the only time that they have that demand is when they're in a wound, when they're a cut or something like that, so that they have to close. They divide like crazy, they close the wound. Once they have closed it, they experience something that's called contact inhibition and they stop dividing. And of course, you know, your average location in the skin doesn't get wounds very often. So it turns out that in a normal lifetime, your average fibroblast just doesn't divide very often, maybe a few dozen times if it's lucky. And that is a small enough number that the cell can get away without any re-extension using telomerase of the telomeres. So it doesn't need to express it. And it turns out that there's a very good reason why cells should express as little telomerase as they can. In other words, none at all if they can get away with it, and only a teeny little bit even if they have to divide more often than fibroblasts. The reason is cancer. Cancer, of course, is a disease of uncontrolled cell division, so we can use telomere shortening as an anti-cancer mechanism. We can simply evolve, let's call it telomere thrift. In other words, um, the, we can evolve a situation in which cells only express just the minimum amount of telomerase that they need, and that will maximize the difficulty that a cancer has in mutating into a situation where it can divide indefinitely. So that seems to be what the human body has evolved to do, and it's seen in other large mammals as well. Interestingly, in small mammals it's not seen, and it's believed that that's simply because a small mammal can be killed by a small cancer, a cancer that hasn't had enough cell divisions to need to turn on telomerase. <coughs> but anyway, so what this adds up to is that there's a trade-off here between, on the one hand, cancer, and on the other hand, degenerative aspects of aging due to telomere shortening and consequent impairment of cell division. But it's not clear whether that trade-off really plays out in practice, whether there's all that much contribution to longevity of humans from telomere shortening as a defense against cancer. At this point, it may be that the uh, idea that was first put forward more than 50 years ago now by Len Hayflake that telomere shortening might actually drive aging in humans is probably true only to a very limited degree. It may be true in the immune system in some ways, but it's likely to be true only in a very narrow range of areas. Yep? So, I know you're a biologist, so you have a biological bias in a way, but um, 
you're ultimately dealing with immortality. And then perhaps a non-biological uh, root to it, which would involve physical means, and perhaps uh, things like artificial intelligence, cyber, strength relations. Alright, first of all, I object to being told that I work on immortality because I don't. Alright, so uh, sure, yeah. So the question, is, so so if I can paraphrase, you're essentially saying that I uh, that I'm ultimately working on immortality and that um, it, we ought to also to consider non-biological routes to this, such as uploading, for example. So first of all, I object to your panic. I don't. I work on health. I'm interested in stopping people from getting sick however long ago they were born. And any longevity benefits that may accrue from my work are a side effect. That is absolutely essential for everybody to understand. Now, let me be perfectly honest, I regard it as a good side effect. I celebrate the fact that people are living longer already than they used to, and that they're, going, they're probably going to live longer in the future as well, as a result of progress in keeping people healthy. But ultimately, it's still just a side effect. That's a really important thing. I do not work on stopping people from getting hit by trucks. Right? I mean, I'm perfectly happy that other people are working on that. But that's, so I do not really like to be associated with the word immortality. Um, to come to the substance of your question, though, do I think that it makes sense to look at, shall we say, non-biological solutions to the ill health of old age? I absolutely do. I think that it's extremely good that people are working on other approaches. And um, if I can uh, partition the other approaches uh, a little bit, some people, uh, uh, good friends of mine, work in artificial intelligence, pioneering in artificial intelligence work, basically because they think the biological approach is the right way to go, but they don't trust me to be smart enough to figure it out in time for them. So they think I might use some computational assistance, um, and that's fair enough. When I, before I was a biologist, I worked in, in artificial intelligence research, so I had some sympathy for all of that. Um, but also, then, there's the hardware side of things, whether we might actually be able to transfer our consciousness, our personalities and so on, to a, a, an alternative substrate that was inherently much more resistant to um, degradation with time. And that sounds like an enormously big challenge, and I believe that it is an enormously big challenge. In fact, I still believe that it's substantially further away than um, the spectral biological approach. But I am acutely aware that any pioneering technologist needs to be, but I could be wrong. That, uh, you know, I may end up finding that the biological approach that we're pursuing is actually a good deal harder, and conversely, people working on uploading and such like may be able to make faster progress. So I am delighted that there is a great diversity of opinion and of endeavor in all of this. And for myself, certainly, if I were faced with the choice of um, being transferred to an alternative substrate or being transferred to no substrate, then I would choose the former. Have you, have you had any success in any areas? Oh, sure. So, um, first of all, let me... Um, define you there, in other words, who has had success. So, of course, Social Research Foundation is just a small charity. We only have about less than $5 million per year to spend, so we can only do what we can. And most of the successes are in aspects of our plan that are, of course, lowest hanging fruit, that have, that, have made, that, that have been at a further stage of advancement before we even existed. And 
Those are areas that we deliberately do not prioritise in our own work because other people are already working on them and we need to have the best bang for the buck. Um, so, you know, stem cell therapies in general, of course, stem cell research has moved by leaps and bounds over the past decade and certainly that's having a great impact on the feasibility of certain therapies for age-related conditions. The, uh, the stuff that we do work on, which is, as I say, an early, generally at an earlier stage of, of advancement, nevertheless, um, of course, we internally can see plenty of progress. And, you know, we publish papers and so on. Yeah, sure, absolutely. We're making slow but steady progress, and, of course, as progress proceeds, so it accelerates, same as in any position. I mean, do you have any specific? No, I just thought that I'm quite clear where that progress is in these seven areas. Well, okay, so let's talk about, let's just take one example, just to give it a bit of concreteness. Um, cardiovascular disease, so the number one killer in the Western world. Um, it's caused by, sorry, coming, down, coming back to the seven things, it's, it's an aspect of um, aging caused by intracellular junk, accumulation of molecular garbage inside the cell. The type of garbage in question is oxidized cholesterol in the white blood cells that are, that are in the artery walls. And uh, sometime before we existed, it had become uh, well established that there was one particular molecule called seven keto cholesterol, which was the public enemy number one. It was the one that was most abundant, most toxic, that was driving the decline of these cells, the transformation of these cells into this undead state called a foam cell, which is the beginning of an atherosclerotic plaque. So um, our approach to fixing this is to identify enzymes in other species that are capable of breaking down the toxin, and we were able to do that. We found bacteria that were able to break down 7-keto cholesterol. That was six years ago now, five years ago now. Um, took us a while to, uh, to find that, but then the big problem was to modify the enzyme so that it worked in a mammalian cell rather than just in a bacterial cell. And we managed to do that. So a year or so ago, we published that we could rescue the toxicity. In other words, we could give cells our enzyme, genetically modified to have our enzyme expressing, and the enzyme targeted to the correct part of the cell, namely the lysosome. And uh, the result was that cells could tolerate, could survive in the context of a much higher concentration of this toxin, 7-keto cholesterol, than they could if they didn't have the enzyme, or if they had the enzyme but it was going to the wrong place in the cell, or they had the wrong enzyme, or any of these negative controls. So yeah, that's, that, that's an example of what we've been able to achieve. You specifically under your umbrella raging and target your first Well, what? Sure. Yeah, we, we, we have this you know, divide-and-conquer strategy. We've divided the problem into these seven sub-problems, and within those seven sub-problems, we pick examples that no, tractable in one way or another, and we uh, have a strategy that once we get this, get a strategy working within one example, we can relatively easily translate it to other examples within the same category. Presumably, so, so this, this one case of cardiovascular is a great example. There is absolutely no controversy at all about the contrast, the etiology of cardiovascular disease. Everybody agrees that it starts with oxidized cholesterol accumulating in the artery wall in, 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 in white blood cells as a side effect of the way that the body naturally moves cholesterol around, and that that oxidized cholesterol 
is poisonous to white blood cells and turns them into foam cells, and foam cells accumulate throughout life, and eventually you've got enough of them to cause inflammation and to cause um, you know, hyperplasia of neighboring cells, of smooth muscle cells of the artery, and so on. And so that's where part comes from. All of this is completely agreed and established. But when you look at what people are trying to do about it, it there's this like crazy gap. So on the one hand, you've got people trying to focus on the late stages, on when the problem has got to the point of a proper atherosclerotic plaque, trying to you know put stents in, for example. On the other hand, you've got people going way too far back in the causal train, trying to actually lower overall cholesterol levels. Um, so as to lower the accumu- slow the accumulation of oxidized cholesterol, which is crazy too, because native actual normal cholesterol is a rather important molecule, you know, it's absolutely essential. You've got pretty much nobody going after the real issue, the oxidized cholesterol. In fact, really absolutely nobody. There are like two or three labs in the world prior to us that even focus on that stage of the process. And those people are not really focusing on doing anything about that, they're going disrupting the process at that point. So, yeah, I mean, presumably, you would think... If your motivation is stop Well, let me again um, come back to the problem of using the word aging. I mean, what is aging, right? I mean, what is in stopping the accumulation of the damage that is eventually bad for you? Right? Now, this is one aspect of the damage that's eventually bad for you. We, we want to stop it accumulating to a level of abundance that is bad for you. We want to keep it to a level that the body is set up to tolerate. Well, following the question that we asked here, obviously, even if what you're saying is successful, you still die of physical trauma. If we weren't die of physical trauma, would you eventually Well, that's tautological, really, isn't it? You know, if we didn't die, would we not die? Yeah, what do you, what's your actual question? Meaning, obviously, by curing aging, we are basically, there's nothing biologically we can do. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by biologically. So, you know, infections are biological. Okay, but, but uh, I mean, but, you're still around picking on you, don't you, right? People are very, very bad at understanding what they mean by the word aging. Uh, I mean, like, you know, What's biological? You know, what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I see what. So, basically, what I'm asking is, we just, we just won't change at all. We just, we cannot die all day. The idea, certainly, is that uh, molecular and cellular structure, and therefore function, and therefore longevity, will not be a function of how long ago we were born. Yes. So, our risk of death in any given year will not be a function of how long ago we were born. don't think there's any age at which it would be a shame for people to exceed. You know, it seems to me that this is the definition of ageism, right? If we think that old people are people too, then what we're basically saying is that how long, you, how long ago you were born is not a factor in your human rights. 
and if health is a human right for people who were born quite recently, that therefore logically means that it's also a human right for people who were born less recently. Furthermore, intuitively, you know, people who were people who are healthy tend not to want to die anytime soon, um, and that's also true irrespective of how long ago they were born. You know, I've never run the Samaritans, but I'm fairly sure that when you call them, the first question they ask you is not your date of birth, so that they can put the phone down if you're over 65. Right? But, but it's just dealing with the issue of the Um, people die of something. If you're not, you don't have to take into account the fact that people don't die of something. Yeah. What do you feel is worse? To be influenced by what you're left to die of, whether that's true or bad. Not really, no. All death is bad. I mean, yeah. Well, yes, but if all, all of them are bad, then it doesn't really matter which of them are less bad than others. Uh, it seems to me that. You know, it, it's just a case of, of making progress. At the moment, we have the rather uh, um, paradoxical, if you like, um, certainly, certainly statistically paradoxical situation that there are a lot of things that go at more or less the same age. And therefore, that when it's difficult to make progress unless we fix a lot of things all at the same time. Um, but that's, of course, the plan. That's the divide and conquer approach that we're taking at Dunst Foundation. Once we do fix all of those things reasonably well, so that we extend life by, let's say, 30 years, which I think is basically what we can expect from the kind of technologies that we're currently working on, then, of course, the question is, what will be next? And how soon will what, what, what will be next actually um, be solved? My view is that actually, by the time we've got as much as 30 years of increased lifespan, we will be pushing, we will be fixing problems faster than time is passing. We will we'll be able to stay one step ahead of the problem and, if you like, re-rejuvenate the same people again and again and again. I've actually given a name to this. I call it longevity escape velocity. Um, um, uh, it might be seen whether that's true, though I think it's pretty much clear that it will be true. Uh, but the point is that if we can get to that point, then yes, there are plenty of other things that can kill us, and we just don't know what our attitude to that, to those risks will be. My guess, for sure, is that we will pay more attention to these other things, you know, in the same way that we kind of tolerate the riskiness of driving today, because even though it's risky, it doesn't kill nearly so many people as aging does, because we don't have time. You know, if you, you could look at the defeat of aging as a method for giving us more time to be hit by a truck. Um, yeah. I think maybe it's about what do you can tackle from because obviously some are more debilitating things. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want it to be... So, it's not, it's not quite that simple. Um, one might say, well, okay, let's prioritize which diseases to work on, which type, which causes of death to work on, on the basis of which ones hit people at a younger age and so on. And, of course, historically, if we look at in a very rough granularity, that's what we've done. Um, you know, back 100, 150 years ago, we focused on infectious diseases because we could, right? And we were quite successful, really. You know, most of the infectious diseases that were killing people in infancy and childbirth and so on are more or less eliminated in the industrialized world now. Um, but it's a somewhat different situation that we're in today because uh, all of the diseases that affect people in old age are very tricky to 
do anything about. Largely because of this thing I said early on in my remarks that um, these diseases are effectively side effects of being alive in the first place, and so one has to tackle them in a rather different way than one would tackle an infection. Um, and, they, and they interact with each other, of course. They exacerbate each other, so that, that makes it that much harder again. Um, so ultimately, what we have seen, what people have actually ended up doing, what society has ended up doing, is making whatever progress it can and damn the consequences, more or less. Uh, uh, probably the most conspicuous example is that today we have an Alzheimer's epidemic, far more Alzheimer's than we had before, a large contributor to why we have so much more Alzheimer's now than we did, let's say, 40 years ago, is that these damned cardiovascular researchers have successfully pushed back heart disease. So not enough people are dying of heart attacks and strokes, and they're getting Alzheimer's instead. Now, you know, one could regard that as a bad thing. And it is a bad thing in the sense that we'd like people not to get Alzheimer's disease. But I don't hear anybody saying that it's a bad thing that we push back heart disease. You know, people still think it's a good thing, it's just that it increases the urgency of doing the same to Alzheimer's disease. That's all. So, you know, there's always going to be this, you know, oscillation, this, you know, uh, something going a little bit faster than others over a short time frame. But over a long time frame, it's just progress across the board. Can you imagine ever, you know, that baby, you know, the big cancer, Alzheimer's, those kind of things, that there'd be a unique evolutionary reason, you know, existence, and never long enough. Sure. So, it's something that comes up all the time. Uh, I have this seven-point plan, and people say, well, hang on, well, how do you know there's not going to be number eight and number nine and so on? And of course, there may very well be. What we can do at the moment is estimate the likelihood of those things coming along and how r roughly how soon they would come along if they came along at all. And, well, to cut a long story short, my conclusion is that, yes, there, is almost certain to, there are almost certain to be new things that come along, but that it's overwhelmingly the likeliest scenario is that they will fit into the same categories. There will be new examples within the categories. For sure that's already happened. Things have come along that people didn't know about 20 years ago, but they fit in very naturally into the existing categories. And that's rather important because the categories, remember, are defined in terms of therapies, which means that if something fits into a, an existing category, that means we expect to be able to treat it using a relatively minor variation on the treatment that works for another example that's already in the category that we already knew about. So the time that it takes to develop that intervention should be relatively short. Yeah, and you to ask uh, how will accept the, those seven categories that you said? Because we have so many called uh, nine hallmark agents. Uh, with nine. Well, I don't know exactly yeah, and the bastards don't even reference me. I would, I gave them a very hard time. Um, um, but anyway, um, well, right, yeah. I mean, if you read that paper carefully, you will see that it bears an extraordinary resemblance to what I say. It's not, it, it's not so good. You understand? It's an inferior version that, you know, I might have come up with ten years before I came up with my own idea. Uh, but, um, but it's, it's. Probably the same concept, yeah. It's breaking the problem down into these various types of damage and talking about how we might fix the various types of damage. Uh, so, would you say that the nine changes total that you're speaking to some of your Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, if, I, if I had to rewrite that paper, I wouldn't disagree with any of it. I'd just come up with a better version of it. A realistically, how far off is it that? Someone can just start walking to a clinic and take the treatment that brings their, you know, their, 
of course, we don't know how long it's going to be. You don't know how long any pioneering technology is going to be until it's, you know, almost with us already. But I don't feel that I can just give you that as my whole answer. A lot of my colleagues in gerontology are like that. They say that it's irresponsible to give time frames because it gets people's hopes up and so on. I say the opposite. I say it's irresponsible not to give time frames because people will carry on being fatalistic and think that the whole thing's never going to happen and they won't advocate for trying to hasten it happening. Um, so, yeah, my view is that I have to emphasize how speculative these um, time frames are, but nevertheless, I do want to put numbers on it. I think that we have a 50-50 chance of delivering these therapies within the next 20 or 25 years. Um, that is subject to funding. I think that at the moment, and I've already mentioned this already, research is only going about one third as fast as it could do if funding were not limiting. Um, but I think that within the next 10 years or so, we're going to make sufficient breakthroughs in the lab that funding won't be limiting anymore because people will understand that it's only a matter of time before these things are coming along, and then my job is basically done. Um, so yeah, roughly 50-50 chances of getting there within 20-25 years. I think there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years, because we may hit new problems that we're not aware of, but that's fine, you know, a 50% chance is quite enough to be worth working for. Sure. Well, okay, first of all, let me answer the second part of your question. I believe that as an advocate and a pioneer in an important humanitarian enterprise, it is my duty to get out there and have an opinion and express an opinion on the sociological context of all of this and, and, and all of these things. So yes, it, I do not think, simply want to say, uh, you know, I do science, I don't do that. Um, what about you? Well, of course, the simplistic answer to your question is, it's just another technology, you know, that starts out being available only to those who can afford it, whether at the national level or at the um, global level, and it spreads out as time goes on. Um, however, I think we can go further with this one. We have two things going for us here. The first one is that health really matters to people. At the moment, there is plenty of disparity in access to certain types of medicine, but the ones that there's, dis there's the most disparity of access to are the ones that either are not very important to people, like their cosmetics, or they don't work very well. So, and, that, and that's the one that matters here. The one, medicine for the elderly today just doesn't work very well. Right? It postpones the ill health of old age by a tiny amount if you're lucky. And so the, the perceived value to the beneficiary of the medicine is, 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 that, is, is limited, as opposed to the option of you know, leaving the money to their kids. You know, dying a little early, right, that sort of thing. So the, 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 the enthusiasm for any kind of egalitarianism is somewhat limited. That won't be the case when the medicines actually work. Right. So that's an important thing to take into account. Um, another thing um, that's very important here is the economic aspect. The fact that these medicines are going to pay for themselves. That the... Um, in half of our age today is just astronomically expensive to society. Not just the actual cost of giving people medicines because they're sick, 
but the cost in terms of like the lack of productivity of the kids of the elderly who are looking after their parents, the, um, the fact that the elderly are no longer contributing wealth to society. So even if these medicines turn out to be really expensive early on, which they probably will, like any technology, um, they'll still pay for themselves incredibly quickly, which means if you look at this from a governmental perspective, uh, at a national level, it would be economically suicidal for any country not to front load the thing, to actually you know, invest, to make the investment to keep, to get this technology out there to, um, to benefit anyone who's old enough to need it. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but if you think through the actual economic logic, it's clear that that's the situation. And, uh, well, I mean, one, one last point before I let you, let you finish. The, you may think, well, um, that may actually work if you're really rational about it, but governments are not very good at being rational, and people aren't very good at so on. But here's the other big kicker that really helps here. There's going to be a long period of anticipation. So I, I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to see progress in the lab that will uh, be sufficiently impressive that everyone's going to know that it's only a matter of time before these, that these medicines are available for humans. At the moment, everyone's still in a state of mind where they'll listen to me on the TV or whatever, but they'll still be able to wake up the following morning and say that it was all a bad dream and that nothing's really going to change. Right. But there's, there's going to come a point where that's no longer the case, where the data is just too strong. And once that happens, it, oh, oh hell's going to break loose and people are really going to be thinking about the possibility and they're going to want this to happen as soon as possible and I can retreat into glorious obscurity and actually start enjoying my life. Um, um, but the point is, there's going to be quite a long time from that point until the medicines are actually available because there's going to be a lot more research to go from mice to humans. Right? And that period of time, which is going to be at least a decade in my view, is going to be spent with society asking itself all of these questions and sorting out what it wants to do in terms of you know, investment in building infrastructure and training more medical personnel and all the things that are going to be required to do what I just said is going to be economically societal not to do. It's suicidal not to do. Well, I suppose my, my question more is related to international. Well, no, this is a point. I think we're going to get taxed to call them both. Okay, so, so, okay, okay, right, sure. So, this is actually much less true these days than you would think. Um, everything I just said ostensibly applies only to, to the developed world, the industrialized world. But remember we're talking 20 years out. Now, the reason we use the word developing for the developing world, which is that they're in the process of developing, and they become more developed as time goes on, right? 20 years from now, China, India, Brazil, you know, these are going to be developed countries, countries with absolutely the prosperity that's necessary to do what I just said, same as any country in Western Europe or whatever. Um, whole South America. Now, there are, of course, countries which may very well still, 20 years from now, not be in that situation, Sub-Saharan Africa. <coughs> but even that, even today, most of the ill health that goes on in those countries is age-related. Even today, age-related diseases and disabilities have overtaken malaria and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, they're going to be in a situation where this is the overwhelming problem. Now, whether they'll be prosperous enough, well, again, you have to measure prosperity according to how you use your wealth. A lot of the difficulty that I think exists in terms of healthcare in the developing world today relates to attitudes to the importance of the value of life, shall we say. 
So, um, for example, I like to use South Africa. So, you know, if the UK had a head of state who was publicly um, sceptical about the uh, idea that HIV causes AIDS, that person wouldn't be the head of state for very long, right? But in South Africa, somehow, it was okay to think that and to say it. Right? And to act on it, to actually have public policy that based on it, and you know, cost a hell of a lot of lives. The only explanation I have for that is that the value of life is just much lower. The perceived value of life is much lower in, those, in, in such countries. So, of course, it's all circular. You know, the value of life goes up as the quantity of life goes up. And uh, we see this within countries as well, of course, more violent neighborhoods being less, having less, lower life expectancy and so on. Um, so, well, I'm a sociologist. I, yeah, so, I, so I, I can't answer this question in more detail than I have, but my general feeling is as I like. And so, I'm supposing that you all will either fund or participate in this research, huh? That's right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.